Hello friends and welcome to The Natural High, which is a podcast dedicated to the pursuit of happiness in all its glorious forms. This week I have the unusual pleasure of speaking to my father-in-law, John Murphy. Listeners to the show will be used to the heartfelt eulogy about each guest, which usually happens right about now. But despite my boundless admiration for the man, I'm going to spare John the gushy intro because it would just make him queasy. Suffice to say, when John turned 50, he had absolutely zero experience of making music. But now he's composed, produced and released a beautiful multifaceted album about Ireland. You can find that album at cityinflames.com. And we're going to talk about his musical journey, his beloved island, and so much more on the show. As usual, you can follow us on Spotify, Apple, and wherever else you listen to your podcasts to get alerted to every new Natural High podcast. Enjoy the show. The Natural High. Oh, my name is Peg Duggan, and this is my story. I was born near Cork City, a townland just beyond. My sisters and I, Sarah, Bridget, and Annie, we were early involved with common the man. From the time when they buried O'Donovan Rossa. We swore to our own native land The men folk did fight against abject oppression The women supported at every command We concealed many weapons sometimes on our persons We offered good shelter to men on the run Visited prisons, gave comfort and counsel To families provided good clothing, homespun And often we nurse men, the wounded, the dying Injuries most appalling as ever were seen We prayed or we cursed as occasions required Saw young men blown apart by infernal okay, no problem. Machines. So, I, I, so I, I guess first of all then we'll just do the live performance. The live performance. <laughs> <laughs> Are you ready? No. <laughs> but firstly, I, I couldn't kick off without getting your take on the current state of play around the world. Or your thoughts on COVID, where it came from. Will it get worse before it gets better? Are we buggered as a human race? Or, or do you think things will get better and we'll change our ways? What are your thoughts on COVID? Um, uh, talk about putting me on a spot, Ali. <laughs> well, it's pandemic. We the, the world has seen pandemics about every hundred years, like so. It's it's not really a surprise, you mm. know. I don't think it's manufactured by anybody or anything like that. Yeah. Like these conspiracy mm. conspiracy theorists say. I think that's all bullshit. Mm. It, it's it's just a natural phenomenon. Um, and so it's it's a it's a very important one at the moment, and they're struggling to find. Obviously, they're struggling to find treatment. 
You're quite a deep thinking guy. You must have thought about it quite a bit. I was just going to say, do you think there's any correlation between, um, you know, the worst performing countries where it comes to COVID and those countries' attitudes towards themselves and the rest of the world? Like, I look at Britain and the United States in particular, and um, they've done the worst out of anyone in terms of deaths and, you know, sort of containing the spread. But they've also got quite high opinions of themselves, haven't they, as countries go? Absolutely, yeah. It doesn't surprise me one bit anyway that the Brits are like that, as you know. Yeah, it's almost like the sense of sort of divinity, isn't it? Like, you know, we're, <laughs> yeah. we're going to be fine. This thing, you know, we, we've been through two world wars, for starters. Yeah, but you, my theory on that is that especially the working class, they've been divided so badly by the establishment for for yonks for, mm. for, for so many years, you know, hundreds of years, that they, they've, they've been told by the establishment that they're superior, even the working class. And, and that everybody right. else is beneath them. And they actually believe it. And as a consequence, you had the likes of Brexit, which, which was just jumping off a cliff economically. And it was, wow, and that's it, a really interesting way of looking at it. Really was. And the working class in the north of England, especially, you know, they, they, they voted pro-Brexit in, in mass numbers. People who yeah, read... it's such a paradox, isn't it? Because like the most patriotic, nationalistic people in England are, tend to be the working classes who have been oppressed the most by you know the class system in in Britain. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, I'm not sure how uh, the curriculum in the schools in England, but they don't seem to teach history properly at all. You know, because if if, if, if it's their history, yeah. Well, if people really studied history, they would see uh, what. England and Britain was all about uh, historically and it was really about s- subjugation you know and, and class divide always it always mm. was right through the, the history of England and yet mm. and yet people who stand to lose most always stand by the establishment especially in times of crisis uh, like, would you say that's just in Britain or is that elsewhere as well I'd say England mainly you know mm. um yeah, England rather than Britain. I, I understand yeah. the, the distinction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. you caught me unawares, you know, because I wasn't uh, planning to talk about this stuff. I'm sorry. I probably should have given you some kind of, you know, I... some kind of information beforehand. But, you know, I, the conversation with you is always amongst the best quality conversation I ever had. So, like, I'm just assuming that you'll be, you'll, you'll be on fire as ever. <laughs> well, it might improve, no, because I'm just having my first drink. Uh, nice, good to know. Um, but what in terms of like your sort of political leanings, um, have you always been into politics or is it something that's happened sort of later in life for you? Because you're very politically active these days, aren't you? And you seem to know a lot about what's going on, especially in Ireland, but around the world. Um, God, I don't know. Um, yeah, I've been involved in, in in the Labour movement, we say, you know, union for for youngs as long as I've been working, and and not necessarily in an official capacity, but I was always looking out for um, inequality in the workplace, you know, which mm. which there always was a lot of, especially in the construction industry, and still is. And so just, I, um, I was always just the more vulnerable people being treated badly. Is that yeah the way? Yeah, I was always a bit of an upstart, you know. <laughs> Hellraiser. <laughs> I don't know about Hillary's. You know, I was puny. I was just like you, very puny. Still, am. except around the midriff. yourself. Except, except around the midriff. But, uh... Brilliant. So, so, okay, but so it was a natural evolution for you because you like. I remember you telling me a story more recently about storming Parliament. I mean, you're an, you're an 
You're an activist, really, aren't you? Well, I have been an act- an activist, yes, but uh, not so much these days, no. I'm, I'm 62 now in August. I'm a bit too old for it, I think. No, you're a spring chicken. Um, tell me about the storming of Parliament, if you don't mind. Like, what what, what uh, motivated it, and and how did it happen? Yeah, well, it wasn't it wasn't Parliament. It was just the local, um, the local council, really. You know, um, uh, they, they were trying to impose um, household tax, property tax, basically, right. basically yes. and, and uh, water charges. No, um, water charges were traditionally. Uh, tacked on to motor tax in this country for some motor mad tax. motor tax for some mad reason. They, it was like, it was like oh. a, a stealth tax, really, you know. Mm. And so, so a section of the motor tax was funding the the water. And so, uh, the version of the Tory party in, in Ireland is called Fine Gael, you know. We call them blue shirts because mm-hmm. the, their roots went right back to fascism in in the thirties in Ireland, you know. They actually wow. give they actually give um, Nazi salutes and stuff like that. Let's much like the black shots in, in in England as well, you know, around the same time. Mm-hmm. And so, these guys are ultra conservative, and they they feel that everything should be paid for and privatize everything. Very very similar to the Tory policies, really. Right. And and poll tax. Uh, s- similar to poll tax, yes. Similar, they, mm. they call it a different name, like, but so yeah, it, it was really the poll tax uh, of Ireland that that, that got us uh, very active at that time. And um, so, how was it different from from the previous tax system? What was so unfair about it? Well, it didn't matter your ability to pay, you know, like pensioners, um, right? Uh, they, it wasn't sort of means sensitive, no, not at all. There was nothing like that. Wow. No, they, they said, look, trust us, it'll be okay. But you know how that turns out normally with politicians, you know? <laughs> and yeah, and it, it, it was... Plus, they set up um, a private water company called uh, Irish Water. And the first thing they did was install gilt-edged pensions for the executives and all this kind of stuff, you know? Wow. Um, built built uh, gymnasiums for them. This is this is before the thing even got off the ground, you know. And in the meantime, they're, they're losing over half the water into the ground with leaky pipes f- from the infrastructure, all Victorian pipe work, you know. Mm. And yet their priority, like, was to set up uh, this kind of um, high-flying executive again. All, all with selling it on in mind anyway, you know. Right. To make it attractive to, to those those uh, investors, I suppose, and then mm. and then again, as in the UK, you see the way that goes. The, the vast profits that these people are taking, and there's no real improvement in your water system in England, you know, or or, or Britain. It's all about the margin. Mm. It is. It's all about profit, you know. So, I, I'm anti-privatisation and globalisation, and it all starts off uh, with, with privatising the. Um, the facilities in, in, in the country. So we took a stand and we fought them and we actually won, would you believe? They say you can't be, they say you can't beat City Hall, but we actually did it. Uh, on that on that battle. Amazing. They rolled, they rolled back on it. No, they'll probably dress it up some some other way now and try and introduce it again, you know? Yeah, but you'll be waiting for them in the at the corner of the street. <laughs> well I don't know about that. No, I don't know. I think I'm past all um, that. What? 
No, you're not. Well, what about um, in general? Because obviously, I, you know, I've never lived in, in the Republic of Ireland and, and Ireland has been an oppressed nation through history. What's it like these days in terms of like the class system? Because, for example, we see a lot of like global country, companies, uh, corporations setting up shop in Ireland because they get such favourable tax weights as far as I'm, I'm aware. Um, do, yeah. Does that seem a little bit unfair to you? And is it, it, is it representative, symptomatic of a, a slightly corrupt system? Oh yes, it is. And e- even the EU tried to fight uh, Ireland on their stance against the uh, multinationals. And only as recently as last week, the EU lost the, the court case. I- Ireland, Ireland were owed from Apple alone. They were owed thirteen billion plus plus taxes and levies. But the Irish government spent almost 10 million fighting against uh, the EU in order not to give Apple or in order not to take from Apple that 13 billion, you know, it, it, it just beggars, it just beggars belief because what just they to give them an easy ride. So they stayed, so they kept their company in, in Ireland. Yeah. But like the, the company, most of that, most of that earnings came from, I forget, I forget the name they put on it. No, but there's, there's just an office somewhere in Dublin. And money comes in, and money goes out of it, and nothing else happens. Mm. It's just money, money laundering, you know. So it's profits wow. from from other facilities landed in Ireland, rubber stamped, and then sent back to Apple without any tax on it. And that was the the bulk of that money. Now, thirteen billion, even for a man of your means, like is a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> My God. But, but so what? But their motivation for not um, charging that thirteen million billion it's, was it's, to, to keep. It's basically, uh, basically trickle down economy. They say right. that you, you know, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. They basically um, tax all the Apple workers you know, and and other multinationals, and and the tax that they get from those seems to be enough for for these uh, right wing politicians, you know. Mm. Do you think, and, like, do you think that lowering your tax rate or giving tax breaks in order to attract business, multinational businesses into your country, do you think that's that's dodgy per se, or you're just saying that it's the way that it's done after they've attracted them that it's it's a bit dodge? Well, I think it's absolutely wrong because we're supposed to be part of a greater European um, entity, mm. and why don't why can't they just? equalize the rates you know it's just ridiculous to me mm. like like and they're supposed to be paying something like uh, i think it's something like 12 percent uh, corporation tax 12.5 percent but in reality they don't pay any because they have so many loopholes built into it you know wow but providing a lot of employment for people in uncertain times, I suppose. Yes, and that's that's the main reason that the that the government allowed this to happen. But I, like, I don't think that we need multinationals at all. I, I, I hate multinationals with a passion because they're always after the, the bottom dollar, you know. Mm. No, no, yes, they do pay. They do pay well. To the people here that, that are highly skilled but a lot of their manufacturing is done in the far east and they, they just pay a pittance like all, like a lot of those fashion chains as well you know mm. it, it just goes further east all the time there, there, there was lots of multinationals here that bailed out eventually um like the likes of dell now and 
uh, Frankie and other people like that, and they just went further. They just built places in Poland. Then Poland got on their feet, and the standard of living increased in Poland, so they just moved further east again, you know, and just left them on their ass. That's what they do. It's all about profit. I'm regularly described as an alarmist because I look at things like this and I say this is just absolutely representative of the problem in this world and why we're not going to survive beyond the next hundred years because of greed, um, greed at corporate level, greed on personal level. I mean, is that something that, that really bothers you? And do you think that we will be able to change our ways? Because I, I think this COVID, for example, is like a massive yellow card. Like it's a big warning. It's to sort of say, if you, if you, you know, if you humans want to carry on living on the planet, you're going to have to involve yourself in systemic change from, you know, in every angle, every, you know, root and root and branch changes. But I just feel like already we're just going back to how things were and, and not really heeding the warning. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, a lot of it is working class ignorance, I believe, you know. Um, right. Working class right. people, working class people, like people with, you know, just average wages. And if they think, if they think they've got... Um, a better car than the guy next door. They're happy to keep it that way, you know, just as long as they keep ahead of the guy next door. They don't look at the big picture, in my opinion, at all, you but know. Greed again. So it, greed it is again. greed. It is greed right down. It, greed has trickled right down. And the funny thing, I don't want to be on the high horse, but the funny thing I find about it is with materials is you're never as excited after you get the material than you were leading up to getting the material. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely correct. Yeah. Like some shiny thing in your future and you're like, oh, God, when I get that, I'll be happy. <laughs> and then you get it, yeah. it's like 10 minutes later, it's just another piece of metal. Yeah, it is. Yeah, you just move on to the next shiny thing. Yeah, that's exactly yeah, what happens. But you, yeah. st- you still don't learn your lesson. You still like covet. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I suppose I'm learning slowly these days. But yeah, I'm, I definitely am anti-materialistic these days. I, I realise that there's no real added value in any object that you could give me. Um <laughs> Yeah, I've got everything I need. I, I I've taken up golf again. I, I I don't know if he told you that. I've taken up what? golf. Yeah. No everybody, way. Everybody says that. Yeah. But like, and everybody says, "What well, a socialist playing golf?" And my buddy Dave up the road taking up golf as well. You know, he's retired from work. And everybody Brilliant. says, everybody says, "Oh, you two hypocrites!" And we always answer, "Under socialism, everybody will be playing golf." You know. <laughs> That's that's what we say to them. Why not? Like it's 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 a nice walk around, you know. But the it reason is. I the reason I think, I, it's a, I think it's a miss. I think it's a misuse of of land, though. Yeah. It's like it's it just it just represents this exclusiveness, exclusivity. You know, the upper crust. You look at these like beautiful land masses, and then you see golf courses in the middle, which only. I mean, how how expensive is it for you to play golf? That's very cheap. Most of the time, it's it's prohibitively expensive. Don't I'd say yeah. in America anyway. Oh, yeah, but it's very cheap here because um, the, the actual golf club that I've joined had been taken over by NAMA, which is the uh, the bailout bank of Ireland from since the re- recession, you know, mm. uh, where, where, the, where the state took control of um, assets of uh, speculators who, who owed huge amounts of money and golf clubs w- were among them. So this one has been bought out by the members. So it's more like a co-op nice. than anything else, you know. Nice. I mean, as for the actual sport itself, I really like it. I mean, yeah. when you consider the levels of precision that you can go to in golf, uh, the variables, how badly wrong you can get it and how right you can yeah. get it. It's, an, it's a sort of lifelong thing to master, isn't it? It is. And millimeter, it's a game of millimeters. And 
you you could go from being Tiger Woods to 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 you know I'm not going to mention any names because they'd probably be politically incorrect. <laughs> it, in a in a millisecond, you know, just one millimeter out, so it, it's that precise. It really is. How good are you at golf? I'm terrible. I'm the worst golfer you ever met. But you, but you find it compelling. You want to learn. I do. I, I improve a little bit every day. But the type of golf we play, like we we throw we throw mud at each other to try and put the other guy off. You know. <laughs> Brilliant. It, it, it's my it's, kind of golf. Yeah, it's it's walking class golf. <laughs> but John, it's interesting. It's because you've you've struck a chord there with me because I've always thought of you as somebody that's really good at learning. And I mean, you 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 you'll, you'll immediately point to your formal education when you're a kid, whatever, and like maybe academically didn't weren't that I've focused no, or whatever. Zero qualifications. But, yeah, but when I met you, I, I think ten, ten years ago, we've known we've known each other ten years now. And when I met you ten years ago, I don't think you'd ever picked up a guitar. Would I be right in saying that? Yeah. Yeah. You're literally not musical at all. No, no. But it, is that? I, I'm still and not. And now though. you're composing albums. Now you're composing albums, like multifaceted albums. Yeah, that's something anyone can do, really, if they put their mind to it. You know. I, you're absolutely right, but yeah. how? But I think people put invi- invisible barriers up in front of them. Like oh, a yeah. great example. I was thinking about this when I was t- thinking about talking to you. And I was thinking, I always talk to Dee, my wife, your daughter. I always talk to her about how I wish my parents had got me, been a bit more forceful with me playing the piano when I was young because they got me a few lessons yeah. and then I just sloped off and did something else. And I often say, oh, I wish they'd, you know, I wish they'd yeah. sort of um, kept me kept me going on that. But it's just, that's just nonsense, isn't it? That's just an excuse that you make it to is. yourself not to do something because 10 years ago you weren't doing any music whatsoever and now it's a central part of your life, right? Yes, but I, having said that, I've always listened to music, you know? I've always enjoyed listening to music. Mm. So when was uh, the first time When was the first time you went from... Because I know you've always been creative as well, like you're Tyler by trade and very creative with the tiling, like you've made some amazing mosaics for us. But did that, was, did that creativity just naturally um, metamorphosize into, into music? Or what, what was the motivation? When, when did you first think, I'm going to pick up a guitar, I'm going to start making some music? I'd say it was lyrics. I, I, I think there's... You know, there's a special innate talent in everybody then, you know. You take an interest in everything, but you know that something that you will gravitate towards and you you find it easier. And uh, words were always pretty easy for me, you know, even though I, I missed most of the school. Um, I, I used to always kind of scribble limericks and things like that and rhymes, you know. Mm. And, and, and no idea about personal why. experience. Yeah, yeah. No Do you idea think you have to have a colourful life in order to be a good lyricist? Um, I don't, I don't because you've that. had a pretty, you've had a pretty colourful life. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. Yeah. Um, but, um, a lot, of, a lot of the stuff you write about is quite political as well, isn't it? It is. There's a political message. I, I, I try to be humorous and and get a point across at the same time, if that's possible, you know. But I find yeah. uh, it depends on the mood. And lately, I've written a lot of sad stuff. Because there's some sad stories evolving around me, you know, uh, with neighbours now and things like that. Right. Um, so, but there's a, yeah, you're right. There's a, there's always a sort of a message in it. Sometimes I don't even know what the message is until later on. Um, yeah, um, it's it's funny. I always I've always found that I can't write a song when I'm happy. When things are all going brilliantly, I just I've got no creativity for songwriting. It's only when I'm sad that I can, you know. Yeah, people say that. Start, yeah. 
start no, doing it's... it. But um, but yeah, I think I don't know. Was I at the first singers club you ever went to? Was I at the first singers club you ever sang at? You were at the singers club, all right. But like I've been going there years, but uh, Deirdre never knew that, you know. And, and uh, she she uh, showed it out in the mail. You've been singing. I've been singing. Yeah. You've been singing there. Wow. So, so basically, just to, just to explain, this is a room, this is Singers Club in, in Cork, which happens every Sunday night? Yes, yes. And you sit in a room with no music, and there are probably upwards of 50 people, would you say? I mean, I'd say there were 50 when I was there, probably. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. There has been, well, 50 is probably the max, but there have been 50 and more. But the average would be and, about 40, maybe. Right. And you having, you know, with no musical experience, you stepped into this singers club and you basically sing a cappella in front of 50 people uh, once a week, which for me, I find that absolutely terrifying. Yeah, it can be. But uh, I, I, I started going there for a long, long time with Brady and uh, never took part in the singing. Mm. Just out of, out of fear. I, I, I would shake with fear, you know. And yeah. so, so I would cower away. He'd he'd ask for volunteers, and I would just hide away in the corner. But it was always my ambition to do it, you know. And I gradually built up the courage. And so one night I, I sang, and when I was finished, I almost collapsed because uh, the breathing was so bad, you know. <laughs> I, I couldn't get my the breath. Adrenaline. Yeah. Yeah. It was terrifying. Um, but it, but uh... it was a fantastic experience because, and it really led to. Um, great things from me then afterwards uh, I stepped forward a lot more and um, put my ideas out there more regardless of whether they were rubbish or not you know get them out there and get them analysed anyway and so that's nice. what I started doing you know but a lot of people don't actually get past that first step do, yeah. do they with something you know public speaking is like a classic example so a lot of people absolutely te- they're terrified by the idea of public yeah. speaking yeah um do you think once you've done it the first time once you face the fear then it becomes easier after that oh uh, yeah that's what happened that's exactly what happened and of course people are going to be kind anyway no matter how bad you are people are going to give you a round of applause and th- <laughs> that's encouraging in itself you know and then you say oh, it wasn't too bad and you might do it again i mean Right. Okay. I mean, you're talking about Ireland. I suppose people are maybe a little bit more charitable there than they are in other places in the world. But I mean, look, you you also you sang out me and Dee's wedding as well oh, like, in front of people that you didn't you didn't know. Don't, like, don't mention it, that. Don't mention it, that. But it takes. Why? It was amazing. It was not. I was pissed. I forgot everything. John, there's a tear in Dee's eye every time she listens to that. But 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 tell me, like, what? How do you do it then? How do how do you get over that hump that most people don't get over? It just How did becomes, you like mentally train yourself to do it? It just becomes automatic once you do it once, you know. It, like it's the old saying, you know, you you never learn properly until you make mistakes. You have to make mistakes. Right. It's the best way to learn anything. Hmm. You, you know, there's people there's people with photographic uh, memories and and they can read the book and memorize the book, but do they understand the book? Is the, is the thing, you know? That's the real issue. You know, you can have a photo photograph. Pardon me. I have no dentures in it. I have no dentures in it. I'm tripping all over my words. <laughs> but um, yeah, photographic memories. But do they understand what they're actually saying? You know, and that's why that's why I think the um, the exam systems in schools is totally wrong. You know, because people can blitz exams. They can get straight A's, and they could be dumb. Mm-hmm. They can be dumb as fuck. I mm-hmm. I, I walked for it. They just learned the answers to specific questions. Yeah. And that's what happens, and I, I, I think that's why it's so unfair, you know. Now, this year in Ireland, uh, because of the pandemic, 
they've actually given everybody a pass in their final exams in, in, in the secondary school. What do you call that? Right. G-levels or A-levels, is it? Uh, yeah, GCSEs in England. G- just before university, like. And they've given everybody a oh, blan- right. blanket pass, you know? That's the A-levels. Wow, they're yeah. serious. They're serious qualifications as well. They've yeah. given everybody a pass just to facilitate them going to university. Yeah, no, there might, there might be one or two talking failures, maybe some gangster son or something like that. But in general, everybody passed. But they gra- the teachers graded everybody on their performance during the, the, the school year. We, which right. is the way it should be done all the time, in my opinion, you know? Mm. Because, As you know, opposed to being but, graded on exams. On, on, yeah, on, on a one-off exam where, where people yeah. could, be, could be completely dumbfounded by nerves, you know? Mm. And, and, mm. and fail it, which has happened to many famous people down through history. And, and like, uh, like, there was an awful lot of, even scientists, like, and they didn't have good exams, you know? And went on to be absolute genius. Of course, absolutely. I mean, it happens all the time, doesn't yeah. it? It's just a mode of teaching as well. Like, I have to say, I mean, you know, I didn't really turn out that well, but I have to say that I'm interested in in, in learning these days, but yeah. I never was as a child, and I don't think, like, my teachers necessarily brought it out of me. They didn't make it compelling. No, no, not at all. Well, you see, that was just 9 to 5 to those people. It, teaching should be a vocation, and, it, and it's not with an mm. awful lot of people, you know? Yeah. It's just a decent job. Really good point. Mm, yeah absolutely so they're not passionate about it so they're not really imbuing their passion or no. com- they're not really they're not emanating passion so you're not feeling that passion no not at all I, as a matter of fact a great example in, in ireland would be uh, um irish language was compulsory in the schools in ireland you know it still is and rightly so i like I, i'm a lover of irish language even though i don't speak it but well, i yes you do but you've written a song in irish uh, more look, than one i don't really speak it you know that's that's just trickery but when I was when I was going to school, I hated it with a passion because they tried to beat it into us, you know. Wow. I really did, and as a, as a consequence, most of the people who went right through the the system came out without a word of the Irish language, and it's a great shame because it's dying and it's still dying to this day. There are mm. there are less people speaking it now than there were 50 years ago. There's all these stats, isn't there, about Irish speakers? But I think it's somewhere like I think I read the other day seven hundred thousand fluent Irish speakers in the world. Oh no, no, no! There's nowhere in the oh in the world. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But not in Ireland. I mean, it's... but when I mean, would you did you not have like an did you not have a natural pride for Ireland when you were a kid then? I mean, did people not have a natural pride for Ireland and want to and want to because it, it always seems to me like a very proud in a good way culture. Yeah, there is there is a good there is a good uh, national pride, but. Again, like it's, it's sort of tarnished, in my opinion, uh, with uh, religion. You know, it was mm. it was always kind of um, I don't know, Celticy Rangersy kind of a feel about it. You know, uh, mm. that that I don't I, I don't think was healthy at all. Mm. Um, and and you know, I'm sorry for bringing up religion here, you know, but again, that that was. I was used, about to ask you more questions about it. Brilliant. That was used to divide people as well, especially the working classes. You know. And, and and you you saw it on on the Ireland of Ireland, in general, where you had settlers in the north of Ireland were given the, um, the Protestant handle, for want of a better word, and the rest of Ireland were just left to be uh, the Catholics that, that they they had inherited by accident of birth, really, and to this mm. day to this day that that's what's preventing now, uh, United Ireland, you know, which which would be uh, you know. Uh, it would be a fantastic thing, in my opinion, again, to have a United Ireland with, especially under 
democratic working class uh, rule, as we, mm. we might say. But there is... Northern always... Ireland just looks so much like England, though, doesn't it now? After all these years of like British rule, it just looks like mini England, whereas Ireland... Republic why, just looks why, so, so Irish. Why do you say that, Ali? I, I've been up there and it looked very Irish to me. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Maybe it's just I'm looking through it through, through a certain lens because, uh, as you know, my dad's Northern Irish and I yeah. always, yeah. But you must, knew you, a bit about the, you must remember, like, the best buildings in Ireland were built by the British. And that stands in, right. that stands in the north and the south, you know? Most of I'm the, glad I've got that on tape. I never thought I'd hear you say that. Oh, there's no doubt about that. I mean, nobody could dispute right. that. The most beautiful buildings in the country were built by the British. By, by, by working class British or working class Irish built by um, British architects but like they are they are works of art the stuff that we are building today are just shoe boxes you know mm. um, in terms of in terms of religion so I suppose like what you're describing is religion being used in Ireland through history as a system of control then yes yes but I mean, in in general, with do you have a problem with religion? I mean, my feelings about religion. I'm not religious at all, but I don't have a problem with being people being religious as long as they're not forcing it onto other people. Because for some people, it gives them real faith and real purpose, and you know, it sort of helps them sleep at night because they the world has a certain system, a certain method, a certain way yeah. within that framework of religion. I agree with that. That's that's the only good thing about it. The rest of it, I think, is is is. How would I, I say mean, when it's... you look at the Crusades, for example, like Crusades around the world and the fact that they've been done in the name of religion. Yeah. Religion has somehow masked the evils of these Crusades around the world. I mean, and people, you know, through history have done these things because they believe that, you know, they've a divine right to go and conquer other countries and that God wants them to do it. I mean, what a load of yeah. da- dangerous bollocks. Yeah. And, and the Spanish Inquisition with a touch of people, you know, uh, just because they might have... They might have cast a doubt on some page in the Bible or something like that. No, not even that extreme. Mm. Uh, like they, they, they just kill people, burn people at the stake, and, and popes were giving out these orders, you know. Um, so I, 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 I had a conversation with a guy only two weeks ago about this, you know, on, on Zoom. He's based in LA. He's a corkman based in LA, but he's practicing right. practicing Catholic. He t- he told me. Which surprised wow. me because, like, he, he was a—he—he he seemed a very sort of liberal type of guy, you know. But mm. uh, and obviously he's a professor of something or other, so he's much smarter than I am. But at the same time, how could anybody, in my mind, buy into that stuff? You know, it's just hocus pocus. But you must have asked him about it. I mean, how do you know him in the first place? I did. I—I I know him two weeks, but we're estranged now—a week and a half. <laughs> <laughs> Because of his views. <laughs> I might have Did you so- ask him, though, about Catholicism and his beliefs? Because it's funny you say it. Because I'm sorry to, to interrupt, but I, um, I, don't know, I don't know how I came across it, but recently I found the, the smartest guy that I went to school with. Like, he was so much smarter than everybody else at school. Mm-hmm. He used to carry, you know, we were like 12 and he'd carry a briefcase into school. He was brilliant. And, and I, for some reason, I saw something on, online about him. And he's now like the archdeacon of something, 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 you know, like really high order of religion in England and I just thought it just doesn't tally with me somebody that smart who can convince themselves that the 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 truth the verity of of a story with so many holes well it's it's blind faith isn't it and that's what they'll tell you blind faith you know but somebody that intelligent I mean you we're talking about intelligent people here your guy in in LA my guy in England and I mean how 
it's it's a strange blind spot. But it's probably, you know, it's probably like meditation. You're into meditation and yoga and all that stuff. I don't even have time for any of that stuff, to be honest about it. But at the same time... Um, it's the people who don't have time for it that need it most. <laughs> I don't mean to... I, I, let me rephrase that. I know exactly what you mean. I, I just don't like it, in other words, and I don't believe yeah. any of it. But mm-hmm. I, I'll tell you, it's, it's meditation is probably praying to yourself, to, to your inner core, you know? Right. And yep. there, there, are, there are hidden depths to, to, to our brains that, that we've only scratched the surface. They say, like, they say we only use about 10% of our, our brain consciously. Mm-hmm. So that's what's going on, I think, you know? And, yeah. But these guys then put labels on it and, and make an industry out of it. And so I'm always very sceptical about religions. Um, but, I'm, I'm, but, I'm, but, I'm, but I'd like to speak to this guy because, sorry, carry on. I'll, I'll tell you in a second. Go on. No, I, I, as I get more mature, I, I, I become more relaxed about it because it can be good, you know? It can be good to the individual. Plus, like, I'm not going to be any comfort to anybody who, who's on their deathbed, whereas they're, what they're looking for is some lies, you know? Somebody right. can come and tell them that it'll be okay. <laughs> I, I'm no good at that. <laughs> You know? Yeah, I mean, I, I see what you're saying about lies, but you know, I think life is just a state of mind anyway. Your, your glass is either half full or half empty. But in terms of this guy, this this smart guy in England, like I'm sure I'd I'd be fascinated to have a conversation with him because I think that he would have a certain rhetoric and logic which would be quite compelling. I mean, he must do. Yeah. Somebody that smart, he must. <clears throat> there must be, you know, he must be able to argue his point pretty well. Yeah, absolutely. But he 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 started sending me uh, videos of. One guy in particular who was excommunicated from the Catholic Church because he he created sort of an amalgam of all the religions and all the gods and he started using all their names and chants to warm up the crowd, you know? Like he'd start chanting Buddha and he'd start chanting Allah and he'd start a whole host of other names that I never never heard of like that. And that that put people's noses out of joint. Well, that put his own. Um, I think yeah. I, I'm not sure whether he was Protestant or Catholic, but do do Protestants excommunicate it, people? I mean, they they probably only believe in one God, right? Yeah, but like this guy was saying that it was all really the one guy, you know, and we're all we're all one. But like I I, I saw through him immediately. I said I thought he was a charlatan. I just wanted to <laughs> knock him out. But when I <laughs> there's really, the old John. When I really had that back to the, the guy, he he sort of took offence to it. <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't send me any more. <laughs> wow, that's great. Um, but okay, so so just going back into the the singing, then so you started at Singers Club. Would you say that really? Okay, you were writing a bit of poetry at the time, and into Singers Club. That really was that was the that was the stepping stone to doing it for yourself. Then yeah, the Cox Singers Club was the the best move I ever made, and it was my wife Brady pushed me to go in there. You know, I, I'm wow. I, I'm very shy, not really outgoing in general and once I got over that hurdle sky was the limit and you mentioned public speaking I I, I went on to um, politics and and did some public speaking and that's something like if you taught me you know 12 years ago maybe I I would have just laughed laughed at you you know but there I was speaking in public and that it really is terrifying stuff you know because yeah, and as I said, most people don't face that fear, but you faced it, and you and you're basically saying that once you do, it just becomes easier yeah. and easier. Every time is easier, then yeah. I have to say, you know, as as you know, 
as you know, I um, I, I sang as well for, for years and mm. I had to get really drunk before I went on stage every time. And I don't think it got any less um, nerve-wracking for me, but maybe that's because I wasn't really facing the fear. I was numbing myself with yeah. booze. Yeah, that wasn't you. That was that other guy that was singing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that guy that, that, uh, we, that we won't mention tonight. <laughs> the other thing I will say about live about live performance is that as you you've you've mentioned it already, like the adrenaline rush. I'd drink like six or seven pints before I got on stage, but I wouldn't feel drunk at all because I'd yeah. be it would be intermingled with all this crazy adrenaline. And then the moment that I finished, I'd just be absolutely like a ragdoll, broken, yeah. drunk, a collapsed heap in the corner. Yeah, that's what happens, and and that's what happened to a lot of famous famous performers, you know. Mm, and they get yeah. wrapped up. They get wrapped up in you know, alcohol and drugs and what have you. And it it just I don't know what it is. A lot of people would. I was surprised to read about a lot of people who suffer from nerves. And when you look at them, you think they were the most confident people you ever met. You know. Mm, but yeah. I, like, there's there's one performer here from Ireland. He's retired now. He's retired when he should be at his peak. Because he, he was so bad with nerves like that he took to the alcohol and, and drugs and it just mm. destroyed him creatively. And he's he's gone off the scene oh, completely. Like, you're not going to mention his name, obviously. Um, but like an absolute genius of a songwriter and performer and musician. And it, it just it just destroyed him, really, you know, destroyed him cre- creatively. Mm. And So you did... Um... So go on. No, no, that's all. I'm just going to say that it happened to numerous people that we all know about, you know, famously, and right down, right down the ranks, even even to the local pub singer, the same thing can happen. People, well, people don't, yeah. and and you're bang on. The reason I think that it happens is that they don't face and conquer their fear first. They they use this um, substitute to get over it, and it never really uh, sorts them out. It just it's just a slippery slope. Hmm. Yeah. Um. It's it's probably very true. Yeah. So, so you started playing the ukulele. Is that right? Before the guitar? No, banjo. Irish banjo. Banjo. Yeah. Banjo. And then and then the guitar. Yeah. Well, I don't. And would you? Would you? Oliver. Go on. I don't really play a guitar. No. Let me just qualify to your listeners. I I'm just a, a three chord strummer, really. <laughs> it's nonsense. I've seen you playing live. I know. Absolute nonsense. I'm telling but you, you but you do but you spend time on stuff though you don't cut corners you don't you know i've been as you know like doing music probably for 20 years and i still can't play guitar and i still can't play piano because i've always cut corners whereas you really take the time that you like to master stuff well i try i try i'm a good tryer i give you that I'm a good tryer yeah but, exactly but which is amazing and you know again that's really interesting and really uh, relates to what we were talking about with school and academia isn't it like as you said no interest at in school but actually you were a really good learner you just needed the right scenario to bring it out. Yeah, I, I really regret uh, not putting more effort in in school, but I, I had no support at home. You, you probably know my backstory, do you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, of course. And, and so I well, no, I mean, I, I didn't know. I, 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 I mean, if you want to talk about it again, because I don't know about the very earliest years. I know about the general. I was actually thinking, you know, I've been there for lots of the most um, important moments of your you life. Are. I was there when your daughter. I was there when your daughter got married. I was there when you met your mum for the first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> I'm like a lucky charm, right? <laughs> no, an unlucky charm. <laughs> but I mean, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, but I, I'd like to tell your listeners that the first time I met my um, birth mother was in the UK about six or seven years ago. And 
so it was this big poignant moment when myself and the mother were in the room alone and everybody moved out except Oliver who was playing with the dog and tickling the dog tickling the dog's belly <laughs> completely oblivious to the, to the to the gravity of the moment <laughs> I thought I did well to break the tension <laughs> Absolutely brilliant, but yeah, I mean, do, do you, I mean that must have had a profound effect in your life as well. But we, I know we're going around the houses, but you've just had such a fascinating life. Yeah, I, I was, I was um, adopted. I know I was, I was aware that I was adopted from very early on because the streets will tell you that you're adopted. And wow, but I was adopted. In what before. sense? How? How will they tell you? Um, it's, uh, Chinese whispers in, in in the home, you know, and. Again, go back to the divide and rule bit, like and and the greed, and everybody would like to think they're a step above the next guy, and then everything is okay once you're not as bad as that next guy, you know. Ah, uh, right. Yeah. And, and so it was. If you're adopted, you're in Ireland, especially you're way down in the pecking order there. Eh? And so mm. as long as I can remember, I was adopted. But it, what's most cruel about it was that I was adopted into a dysfunctional family, you know, who, who weren't fit to rear a child. Wow. Uh, which was very tough. Because most people that are adopted nowadays, well, we'd we say back in the 70s, maybe, or 80s, you'd have to be sort of wealthy to be given a child because there was a scarcity. And so mm. the chances were they were good people, and so you were going to get a good upbringing. But I didn't have that. I didn't have much support. I was, I was, wow. I was adopted by an alcoholic and by a schizophrenic, really. But, Why would they want to adopt? Did they just feel like they, they they were unhappy and that that you could fill that unhappiness hole? Maybe, maybe so, but like, maybe so. But they were appalling parents, to be honest about it. Um, wow. But on the positive side, like it, it made me self-sufficient, you know, from a very early age. I was sort of the MacGyver of early of uh, Ireland in the sixties, you know. <laughs> so, do you think so, it's still do, is, is it still with you now in your persona do you think or is what? it something that yeah oh absolutely is yeah like absolutely it was dysfunctional is dysfunctional you know there, there are positives to be taken from my situation but it's still a negative in many ways you know you're not normal it I gives you think... a weird moral compass, I suppose, when 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 yeah. their normality is so abnormal. Yeah, yeah. So normality that. to you is very abnormal, and so you just fucks up well, your whole perception. It can, but like, I've I've got a good moral compass myself, um, and but there there's an instinct in there to, uh, that that might coax you to stray a little bit, so you have to correct yourself a lot, a hell of a lot. Mm. Mm. Um, and strange thoughts. No, that may be the case for everybody. I don't know. Speaking for myself, though, I, I you know, I, I, if I was, you know, passing the queen, I might want to steal her crown or something like that. You know, and I have to correct, <laughs> correct myself. <laughs> and that happens a lot. <laughs> kind of a Tourette's. And moment. you, right? Yeah, of course. But, but I mean, but do you, it hasn't destroyed your whole life, though. I mean, you seem to me like a very and you you often credit your wife as well as as having sort of pulled oh, you out of the mire to a degree. Oh, without a doubt, like I, that was the best the best move I ever made was um, meet Brady. How did adult. you meet Brady? A double date. Uh, it's a lunatic of a guy. Wanted to wanted to go with this girl, and Brady was her friend. So 
you know, girl, girls in Ireland in, in the in, uh, six, late 60s, early 70s were sort of a double act, really, you know. So if you wanted right. to go one of them, if you, had to go, if you wanted to go one of them, you had to have a partner for the other one. So right. I, I, was, I was the support act. And then... Um, <laughs> the wingman. Yeah, and it worked out good. And was it love at first sight? Did you get on straight away? Yeah. Definitely. She's an amazing woman. She's yeah, an inspiration to us all, as are you. She is. Oh, she's a phenomenal woman. There's no doubt about that. And you're great um, friends as well. That's that's that always strikes me. You're great mates. Like you would, in terms of like spending time with somebody socially, she'd be what towards the top of the list, right? Always. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely. But having said that, we're like chalk and cheese, you know. Mm. Com- completely different character. Like she's the most outgoing person, as you know. She can speak to anybody, you know. Uh, me. Uh, yeah, she but... just strikes me as completely without ego. So she doesn't yeah. look at things in terms of how people might perceive her or how, you know, she just she just does it all so naturally. Yeah, because she's a giver, you know, and she's taught me a bit of that. It took a long time to teach me that, you know. But like you spoke earlier about um, material things and they're meaningless and they are meaningless. But the more you give, the more you give, the more you get actually get back. Oh, my God. So I think giving is selfish. I think giving is actually selfish because it makes you feel so much better about yourself. Yeah, absolutely, but that depends on your motivation, of course, you know. But yeah. def- definitely, like, definitely, it's it's the thing to do. It's uh, you just feel just wonderful inside, you know. I didn't realize that this oh. until very late in life, and mm. thank thanks to Brady for that, you know. And also because of your upbringing, you probably didn't feel like you probably weren't made to feel like you had much to give. Oh yeah, God, yeah. Like you feel like an intruder, you know. You you, you feel. I always wanted to hide. Plus, I had the um, the added stigma because I, I I could be accosted by a neighbour about something that, you know, one of my drunken parents had said or done, you know, and they would they would oh accost they would accost uh, a thirteen year old, you know. Because so you had to be the parent at the age of thirteen, basically. You had to parent your parents. Well, at times, at at times, yeah, times. Mm. So I was constantly hiding, you know, hiding in plain sight. And so that's why that Cork Singers Club was so important to my development, you know. And that was that was my 50s. So it was a long, long journey, you know. Wow. And do you, but do you think like, OK, uh, you know me, I'm from relative, compared to you, like relative privilege. You know, my sisters always talk about how dysfunctional my family has been. But I was... I never had to worry about food. I never have to worry about clothing. I had food, I had the basic needs covered. And I feel that, you know, we ha- we all had love as kids. We had our family, yeah. my mum and dad's always been together, etc. So my dad died. And um, so, so I was very lucky. But do you think maybe sometimes like the adversity can help you understand what happiness is later in your life? Like if you don't know what sadness is, then are you able to really appreciate happiness? I mean, you can always look back on that now and go, that was fucking awful and how lucky am I now that I've come through it oh yeah well I say that to myself every day but there's sort of a warp logic in that because that's like saying you know you had both legs and both arms cut off but at least you don't have to be fucking waving them all the time you know <laughs> oh my god I don't know why I'm laughing <laughs> typical typical John Murphy humor <laughs> no it's absolutely right and I you know I, I, I as I said I, I had such a lucky upbringing that it's hard for me to like try and compare, but it just 
I speak to lots of people who say that, you know, like the adversity in their life was, or, or as well as being horrible, was like a, quite a good springboard because forced them to, you know, out of themselves and to do other things. Yes, it can be. But I mean, there, there are many, many millions of casualties that never got to see it, I think, you know. Exactly. Yeah, 100%. Um, so going back to their music then, because this is yeah. just fascinating. So you picked up the banjo and then you picked up the guitar. I just want to ask you technically about guitar. You say you don't play it well, but do you find, as I do with guitar, that there are lots of glass ceilings, where areas where you might just give up and not go to the next level? Oh, man. If, if, if any musician that knows me are listening to this, I apologise, and this is just all about... <laughs> I am not a guitar player. I'm telling you, you know, not all a right, guitar All right, all right, but you... But you've become musical. You've become musical. I mean, you, you're writing songs. You're, you're creating those songs. You're composing. You've been in the studio for the last however many months, like writing an amazing album yeah. about the history of Ireland. Cork in 1920 was an extremely volatile place. If you look at some of the old photographs from that time, you will see a lot of Union Jacks hanging from the buildings around the city centre. But don't let that fool you. Cork's merchant princes at that time would have been mainly loyalists, but on the ground it was a Republican hotbed. The Cork Corporation was dominated by a majority of Republican councillors and our own Irish culture was becoming more and more popular with the citizens. Housing conditions at that time were extremely poor with large families sharing tiny rooms in tenement buildings with little sanitation. Almost 9,000 or 11% of the population of the city inhabited these ill-suited dwellings. People started to resent the presence of the British rulers because of the brutality inflicted upon them. More and more young men and women were joining the Republican movement and taking up arms against the British. Your lands of Verdun's Isle Your country needs you List a while Time for you to put aside Your worries and your fears The time has come To shed our chains Cast out John Bull Take the reins We fight for Ireland's freedom With the Irish volunteers yeah, I do. I do, I do have a guitar, and it's just trial and error. I just, I, I'm just so dumb that I keep picking it, and picking it, and picking it until <laughs> something sounds okay, and then discard the rest of it. That's all it is, and anybody can do that, you know. That's what I do. So, but you did, you did quite a lot of live performance before this current project came along as well. I mean, I've seen loads of. Well, I haven't seen them in the flesh, but I've seen you sent a few videos of, of yeah. performing with your with your band. Yeah, it's it, amazing. But okay, so I can see political leanings for all the way through your life, like you know, writing, writing about the that. Twelfth day of December is a day we should remember. As Cock City was still smouldering as the day began to dawn. The tans were looking for a kill, made their way to Dublin Hill. Father to Delaney's Cork Italian First Brigade. And as the lads were sleeping, the How did this all manifest in... How did this album come about? How did it all happen? Well, uh, my neighbour, he lives second next door to me, and he's a librarian, and he's heard, he's heard a few things that I've done in the local pub. You know, We, we play a lot of covers... Uh, myself and a few friends and 
I'd, I'd throw in one or two originals in myself, you know, just just mm-hmm. just for the laugh. And so you get you build up a little mini reputation for maybe knowing how to write a few things. And he saw one video that I put up of. Um, I'll have to go back a bit now. There's a, a political activist that I know. He's he's staunch Republican, and. I was I was asked would I write a song about a known song hero right. from Cork, gotcha, mm-hmm. who, who died 100 years ago on hunger strike. So I and said, what is his name? Joe Murphy, Joseph Murphy. Right. So okay. I I said I'd have a try and see what happens. On a cold and grey October day in the year 1920, a funeral hearse approached the gates of St. Thousand mourners walk behind upon the gravel rock. His parents cried with anguish. The boy from out of town. They came back home from Boston in the year of '95. The Murphys with their children too. Cork City did arrive. Joe Murphy soon immersed himself in the culture of his land. Hurling football old Belding were all at his command. Age 19, he enlisted the Irish volunteer. I'm always looking for ideas to write stuff about anyway. So I had a go and the people liked it. So they took a, a video of me singing it at a commemoration event. And my neighbor, second next door, saw it on Facebook. And he's a fairly, fairly knowledgeable guy, but he knew nothing at all about the man that I was singing about. And so he decided 
Jesus, like there's an awful lot of unsung heroes that we don't know about, you know, and they were brainstorming and work about how they were going to commemorate the burning of Cork, which happened 100 years ago this year. And he works in the city library. Why was Cork burning 100 years ago? Um, Cork was burned 100 years ago because uh, there was an uprising with the um, Irish volunteers who had morphed into IRA, the old IRA. They had enough of British rule. So they started uh, combating British forces in Ireland in general, but very much right. so, very much so in Cork City and County, and so they had so many victories uh, through guerrilla warfare that the British uh, just decided to, as a, an act of reprisal, burn the city down basically. Wow. So that's what happened. So that that's that's 100 years ago this year, and there were huge amount of um, commemoration events planned, but because of the pandemic, they couldn't happen. Sure. So my my neighbor, the librarian, uh, convinced his boss that he knew a guy that would write a dozen songs about that event without asking me, by the way. <laughs> and his, his boss says, yeah, that's a good idea, because um, previously they'd, they'd, they'd commissioned books and he said, nobody ever bought the books. You know, they were just in a heap in the library. If you go into a library, right. you're not planning to buy a book. You're planning to borrow a book, you know. Mm -hmm. So he decided if, if we um, if we made a, an album instead of songs, people might buy it and it might be successful. So he had that idea. Amazing. His boss said, yes, they would find funding for it. And he knocked on my door and he says, um, hello, John. I want you to write a dozen songs. <laughs> So that, that's what happened. And these dozen songs, they're all about that specific moment in history or are they a, a, a sort of more broadly about uh, British oppression, British rule in Ireland? Um, most of them are about, most of them are about uh, 1920, but there's obviously a broader message in all of them. You, you try to fit in the full story so that people will be educated about it. Um, a, lot, a lot of people... A lot of people in Ireland, like that, that, that history was airbrushed as well. You know, a lot of it because of the history written, written by the winners. <laughs> winners, you see, are there winners? What happened was after the War of Independence in Ireland, Lloyd George was Which the prime was minister. When? It was nineteen twenty to nineteen twenty to nineteen twenty one, but okay. it was. You know, it, it's a bit vague. There was a lot of things going on before that as well, but officially it's, it started 1921, 1920, I beg your pardon, and finished late 1921 when a treaty was signed. But the treaty was signed, as you know, leading to the partition of Ireland. So hmm. that started a civil war in Ireland then, and they were completely split down the middle, the Republican movement. And so was it a victory? We, we really don't know. It was a victory for some. It wasn't for others, you know, and that divide is still there to this day. So, as a consequence, um, 26 counties and the educational system, this is just my opinion, oh, by the way, like I'm not an expert on this, but a lot of it was airbrushed from the history books, you know, because civil war, like, is not something that people like to commemorate, really, in any any nation. 
so it was sort of overlooked and glossed over a bit, I think, anyway. I, a historian could prove me wrong, you know, but uh, that's the general feeling here, anyway, with the uh, unwashed, including myself, that it was airbrushed with. It was definitely airbrushed from the UK because most people in the UK know nothing at all about Irish history, you know? Sure, yep, yep, very true. But we do know that that was the spark which has been going on pretty much ever since, right? And we talk about the uh, the troubles in Ireland, the Irish troubles, and that was... Yes. I mean, I'm sure it started before that as well, but it's been happening ever since 1920, essentially. Yes, essentially it is, yes. And you had you had the six-county situation then where there was a majority of Protestant people. And you see, there's an awful lot of subtle things that went on up there. Like if somebody... If somebody... If somebody says that they understand the Irish problem hasn't been explained properly to them you know that's an old saying mm. because it's so complex but right. it was all it was all dividing rule and there was a majority of protestants in the north but the vast majority were working class people but mm. they felt they had that little bit more than the catholics had and they didn't want to be ruled by rome and so they fought to nail to, to hang on to it you know but right. at the same at the same time the working class protestants in the north of ireland they, they were fucked over as well by their masters, you know? And, and, and so you had all these different class levels in the north, and it was just completely crazy. But they, they fought, I mean, they, they, they fought in the Somme, the people, uh, the, the Ulster volunteers. I mean, they made great sacrifices as well, all in the name of um, defending the crown. But... Really, they were no better off either, you know, the working class there. Just that little bit more than the Catholic uh, population up there. Again, oh, that's mm. just my opinion, you know. It's a pretty well-informed opinion. Um, uh, do you think that the British ever have ever made sort of reparations or accepted sort of fault for, you know, their, their behaviour in Ireland over the last hundred years? Or do you think they just, they've just never really accepted any sort of blame for the way things have gone? No, they never did it anywhere. I mean... They've done this in more countries than Ireland, you know. I mean, India, I mean, what a mess they left after them there. Okay, they, they, built, they built the railway, yeah. But that's, that's about the only good thing you could say. Um, they massacred people in, 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 in their thousands in India. For what? Um, and the Irish have been treated really badly as well. Enslaved, you know, oppressed, yeah, yeah. starved. I, I need to say this. I qualify that by saying... The English establishment, because the working classes in England at that time yep. were subjugated just as much as anyone else, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, they were mm-hmm. treated abominably, abominably by dentures of playing up here again. And, uh, but, but, but as you say, they remain, a lot of them remained patriotic. Did it, did it, because they might have had, had uh, one rabbit more than I had or something for their dinner, you know? Uh, it, was, it was just ridiculous stuff, really. Okay, so basically, the album it got it sort of snowballed this, didn't it? To the point where you got funding and you were able to, because I'm assuming that you know when it when it was first mooted, the idea it was going to be a pretty much sort of bootstrap, do it yourself album, right? Yeah, kind of, yeah. Rather than like there was, they weren't giving you funding right from the off. Well, they they promised funding, and uh, my neighbour John John O'Leary is his name. He's a librarian, as I said, and. Very enthusiastic man, and so he he was promised 
by his boss that there would be funding available. So then he decided it's not going to be a shoestring thing at all. You know, we're going to do it properly. So he, he put in big numbers to the boss, big numbers that that, that wow. we needed, um, knowing, knowing that they wouldn't give all that, but that they would give enough then to do a very professional album, which has happened. Amazing. So you were able, so you were able to get funding to actually bring in professional musicians to 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 help make the album, make it come to life. Yes, it's incredible. They, they they've made a, a sick part from a soul's ear, basically. These guys like <laughs> Conor sure. O'Sullivan. Conor O'Sullivan is the name of the the producer, and he's just done a fantastic job. As as luck would have it, he had just built the studio uh, in his own property, you know, outside his own house. He's a wonderful musician himself. You know, he, he plays every stringed instrument. And on the album, he, well, he can. Oh right, see, just in general. In general, right, yeah. he can, yeah. And uh, so he was just in the middle of building the studio, and this uh, opportunity presented itself. So I'd say he took it on. I, I gave him a raw demo of me singing all the songs, which was horrific. It must right. have been horrific to him, you know. And and listening to my three chords plunking away in the background, but but it was a kickstart for him as well, you know, for his for his new studio. So it just everything just fell into place wonderfully, and it, he made a fantastic job of it, really did, no, you know. Um, I mean, I know you're very good at um, self-deprecation, but this is all being composed by you, and I'm, I mean. So, so I, you, you only sent me the music last week for the first time, like the finished master stuff. It hasn't been mastered for long. It hasn't been finished yeah. for long, has it? No, that's all last week. And and I know that you, you've you always seen me as a master of hyperbole, but I, I was absolutely blown away. <laughs> like, I can't say it in any other words. Like, I couldn't believe, A, that like, not A, in, in, in no particular order, but like the production quality was obviously incredible. And then you've got the instrumentation, which is just sensate like better instrumentation than anything you know i've ever sort of really been involved in in any sort of way like you, you hear albums like that and you're never going to meet the person because it's just like some elite musician of international repute you yeah. know but then you've got this on your album and then the composition of the songs as well which is just fantastic and for my favorite song at the moment is numbers is a second song command Ma, Ma, namaban is that how you pronounce it <laughs> common Naman. It's, it was the... Uh, come on the man. Come on the man. It, it was the... Uh, Which... That was... <laughs> Don't laugh at me. <laughs> Say it one more time. <laughs> yeah. But but the, but you wrote that song, and it's in Irish, and it's it's absolutely stunning. Ah, well, it's... No, no. It, it's not in Irish. There's, there's one verse that I had translated uh, by, okay. s- by somebody in Irish. I, I, I really am not an Irish speaker. Or Gahurev Lord Uchta Dorcha Viscrata Nathinig Fulling to Sig Fulling to Gurgair Ni Mordoing a Shasuvigin and Tirnish Is Tiranig a Rogert Gudio Asardir Quimir the Lana Vigir a Sirsha our own rebel city is solid and tortured 
Her people are suffering to such a degree That we feel it's our duty to stand and be counted And banish the tyrants from our country I pray for the time when our country knows freedom And on her own feet she stands proudly God bless the heroes of Ireland's rebellion, the bold IRA and common the man. But I, I, I definitely wanted something in Irish on the album, you know. I think it was, it was only proper and fitting to do that. So one of the, the, there's three verses to the song, and the third verse I had translated, so it became four verses then, you know. That's what that is. Mm. So don't be giving me too much credit as well. Okay, but still, I mean, I'm still, I'm amazed by how good the quality is. And how, where did you get, how did you pull in all these musicians? Like, where did you get them from? Well, that was basically Connor, the, Connor O'Sullivan, the producer. He, he's got loads of friends. But, you know, luckily enough for me, <laughs> the pandemic, they were all out of work. There's no gigs going on anywhere. Right. And so, right. so he could get anybody he wanted, really, you know. And there was a, there was a, there was a few quid there to to pay them with. Always nice. Yeah. Always nice to be able to, do that, especially for such a good cause. You know, like people are probably you know happy to take any sort of uh, payout to do something which is so enjoyable, which represents their history, and which, as we know, which we'll go on to, is is for a good cause. But um, how did you decide who was going to sing on each of the? Did you was that a group decision? No, oh, that was me. Um, most of the people are friends of mine from the singers' club, uh, and when I was compo- when I was composing the songs, their voices popped into my head to form the song. So they're, they're, they're almost co-writers of the songs, you know. Mm. Um, now there's two prote- two professional musicians singing on it. One guy is called Jimmy Crowley. He's probably the most famous local balladeer living in Cork. He's singing the first song, uh, Come On You Lads of Aaron's Isle. Mm-hmm. Um, and his name alone like, was worth gold for us to, for attracting the, the funding as well, you know? Wow. Be- because it gave it that professional look uh, from day one. The time has come to shed our chains. Cast out John Bull, take the reins. We fight for Ireland's freedom with the Irish volunteers. Fight for Ireland, take your silent, stand up to your foe. Proud and mighty, down with blighty, let the tyrants know. Sure. Have, have his name on. Yeah. And then there's, there's another song, The Brave Fighting Men of Crossbury, composed by Tim O'Riordan, who actually had a number one hit in Ireland um, 15 years ago with a song called The Langer Song, which is a colossal hit in Ireland, you know? Wow. And um, I heard his song. A friend of mine gave me an album of his, and there was a song on it that, would, that would, I, I thought would be very suitable for our project. And I asked him, and he kindly donated a song to us. Um, and it's a wonderful song. So, And then the, the other one I didn't write, I, I asked a friend of mine in the Singers Club, who's an Englishman, domiciled in Cork, called mm. Cliff Wedgbury. And he wrote the, the ballad of Alfred Hudson, who was an Englishman himself. And 
around about the same age as Cliff was when he composed this. So it was huge um, coincidences involved for him. And he took a great liking to the subject. Most of us never knew any of this history till we started researching it all, you know. Mm. But uh, he fell in love with the story and he made a fantastic job with that song. Yeah, uh, brilliant. Um, uh, you know, and I just think the more people find out about this, more people are going to love it because people love Irish music. There's a very folky element to it. And as I said, it's beautifully composed and performed. I also really like the narration on it because it gives you so much context. Yeah, yeah. the narration is by another friend of mine from the singer's club called Jory Miller, who's a great storyteller and sort of a local comedian. Not, not a professional comedian, no, but he's a very, very funny man. But very clever man as well. Mm. Um, so, again, when I wrote um, the narrative, I suppose you call it, his voice was in my head. So I don't take much credit for that either. Like, <laughs> uh, it was just sort of spontaneous. And he was always the man I was going to ask. And uh, he did a great job. But he was very, very nervous for the recording. So he took about a million takes to do it. Really? Yeah, but it turned out fabulous. It turned out exactly the way I had imagined it. Yeah, but, amazing. Yeah, that's Jory Miller. Okay. And so what was the method, though? So this guy just gave you 12 historical figures and you created songs around them. Is that how you did it? No, nobody gave me anything. I, I just started researching what happened 100 years okay. ago. and So you, you, you decided on the, which people that it would be concentrated on? Yes. Which historical yes. figures? Wow. Yes, yes. So what are the most interesting stories there then out of those 12? Like the ones that really stick out to you? Are there songs that stick out? Are there stories that really stick out? God, I don't know. I don't know. That's that's a tough question to ask somebody who who composed it. It's a matter of opinion. And there's a lot of people that have heard it now and people have different favourites, you know? Of course, but is there there a story in particular that that, um, that really intrigued you? Um, Well... The story of the two Lord Mayors of Cork, 100 years, like a Lord Mayor is a pretty lofty position. And right. um, so Sinn Féin came to power in January 1920 in the elections right across the country. Um, and so Tomás McCartan was elected uh, Lord Mayor of Cork. And in January he was elected and in March, Actually, on his own birthday, he was murdered in his own bed by the uh, RIC. They shot him in front of his uh, pregnant wife and his five other children. Wow. Um, just because, you know, he, he, he was known to be an IRA man, but there was absolutely no evidence of anything of the sort, you know. And it just, just a, a, a dead squad came and, and killed the man in front of his family. But... The British make that same mistake time and time again, you know, brute force, brute force and ignorance. And it just spurred the people on more. Um, and by the end of the year, they were offering peace negotiations, you know, because uh, they, they just inspire people, more people to take up arms against them, you know. Mm. Uh, so that story like, is, is a very, very brutal and sad story, but it ultimately led to the, um, I suppose, the freeing of the 26 counties, anyway. So that was Tomás McCartan. But but can you imagine to kill a Lord Mayor in any in any city, any city in the world, you know? Wow. Um, it's huge. 
it's, it's, it's colossal. And so that, that kind of kick-started it. And then his successor was his great friend. His name was Turnus McSweeney. And he then became Lord Mayor. And they framed him on a, some ridiculous charge about having um, a coding machine or something like that, which that guy wouldn't be handling stuff like that. There probably were people um, with coding machines, but I mean, he wouldn't have been doing it, but they planted it on, in his office. So he immediately went on hunger strike and he actually died in Brixton prison in, in London. And, I, and it, that was October of that year. And so the, those two stories really like are, and funny enough, like I did, I sound very knowledgeable now, but I only researched this stuff sort of like, you know, not eight, not 12 months ago. I just vaguely knew about it. But it's such a huge story and we really don't know much about it, and even in our own country. So know that it's going to be going out in, on an album. People might take notice of it, you know. Yeah, it's amazing. That's the whole purpose of it. And also you were educated yeah. through the process as well. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I, I, I feel embarrassed talking about this subject because people that know me who are Republicans know damn well that I was never really a Republican in that sense, you know? Mm. Like, I'd be, I'd be a Republican, a general Republican anti-royalist and all that, you know? But mm. uh, not really, no. I'd be more a socialist than an Irish Republican. Some people say they go hand in hand, but that was never um, the position that I came from. That's why I feel like a bit of a phony. But having researched those people and, and their great sacrifices, I thought, my God, this story has to get out there, you know? You know, I, I was saying to you that, you know, the, hist the British people didn't know their history, but mm. actually Irish people don't really know all the history. I certainly don't know it anyway, you know? Mm. Uh, are are the, the most crucial parts of it, but my eyes have been open now, to be honest. And you, you mentioned the mosaics there earlier, and so that's part of my tribute. I, I've during the lockdown I, I was all work obviously like most other people in the country and so I got some materials from people I know and started making mosaics of the um, of six six of the people that were involved in the, the War of Independence in Cork so they're on my garden wall now for all the world to see <laughs> that's brilliant I've seen pictures that's absolutely <laughs> awesome uh, and I, I'm hoping that you're going to be alright with me punctuating this uh, podcast with loads of uh, snippets of um, the City in Flames album. Oh, of course, of course, yeah, yeah. It's it's there, there for all to see, yeah. Is there one that you would uh, absolutely insist on me putting in there? One what? One photograph? One song? One song? No, one song from the album that you you know that you particularly what? like that particularly resonates with you. I know that they all do. Um, all amazing songs. I I'd struggle to pick one out. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. To be honest, like I mean. There's some very sad songs there, that, and there's a, there's a couple of um, upbeat songs. So hmm. I really don't know. I, I, I couldn't. It's like a, it's like asking me to shoot one of my one of my six children. You know. My comrades on Hill Hill and look down on the valley below. And I wondered how people might speak of this day One hundred long years from now With their hearts filled with pride For these men by my side Who any moment would give up their lives For the cause they believed in 
was ever so right All the brave fighting men of Crossbury So name them, acclaim them, honour them all In history's pages their deeds we recall To gain Ireland's freedom they answered the call All the brave fighting men of Crossbury And up on the hill to see Ford's Ballymurphy on fire We knew Charlie Hurley was resting up there We hoped that he might yet survive When the sad news was told, heads were bowed low Our brave brigadier had died fighting alone Ah, but how he'd have loved to stand facing the foe with his brave fighting men of Crossbury. So name them, acclaim them, honour them all. In history's pages, their deeds we recall. To gain Ireland's freedom, they answered the call. All the brave fighting men of Crossbury. So anyway, it's, it's, it's www.cityinflames.com. You can download the whole album there. I highly recommend doing it. And it's also for a good cause as well. Could you divulge that a little bit? Yes, it's uh, Alana. Alana's Butterfly Life. Uh, a very good friend of mine, Tommy. He's, um, his niece, through marriage, uh, had a baby four years ago who had this... Um, awful awful condition and um sort of oh it's some weird latin name that i can't remember but it's generally known as butterfly syndrome where mm. our skin is just it's just it's just as thin as a butterfly's wing really and right. the slightest touch like. slightest yeah the slightest touch will cause it to blister and it's just absolutely horrific but she's the most beautiful happy baby in between bandage changing you know which is you can imagine horrific or, or nappy nappy changing at the time when she was younger and it was just unbearable to think about so um that's quite that's, that's courage isn't it that's proper courage unbelievable unbelievable but when you see that child smile uh, like how anybody can smile at any stage going through that like it's just unbelievable but that's the human condition for you you know so anyway there's 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 hope now of treatment and possibly a cure down the line. And like we spoke earlier about privatisation and at least at least in the UK, the National Health is still holding on. Now, yep. Boris will, will try hard to get rid of it, as you know. Every Tory. Yeah, every Tory. Um, now, a lot of ours is gone. And so there's an awful lot of uh, private health involved in this country, you know. So basically what it means is your life is worth less than somebody with more money than you, you know, that's basically what it means. And so, yeah, so any funds that we may make from the sale of this uh, CD will go towards uh, Elena, baby Elena, and possible uh, treatment that may be uh, forthcoming. So, yeah, uh, that, that, that's, that's, uh, that, that's thanks to Tommy, of course. Uh, yep. he's, he's done fantastic work for that charity. And every cent, every cent that's made from the album will go towards helping Alana. Yes, because like 
well, all musicians are paid from the funding that we had, and yep. we actually had it. We actually had it. Uh, an anonymous donor as well that we still don't know where the money came from so we're well covered so nice. everything that's made everything that's made will go to the charity it's absolutely fantastic i, I want to talk to you very briefly to finish off just about ireland in general because now you've written this album which is all about political troubles in ireland the history like a, 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 you know a terrible violent history but do you think that because of the oppression, that's what makes Irish people? Obviously, it would be better if there was never any oppression. The Irish have never been oppressed, never been treated badly by the countries. But do you think that's part of what makes the personality of Irish? Because they are, it's, it's, it's a universally popular country as far as I can see. Irish people are adored, revered around the world. There's a sense of resilience, a, a sort of chipper, happy-go-lucky nature, good storytellers. Do you think that all comes from like your your history what, what do you love about ireland and why i don't know is that true i, I think that's a cliche to be honest I, like are you, are you feeling a lot of cliches are true though <laughs> i think uh well i give you another cliche you know, it's probably because we're so good at drinking guinness you know <laughs> well we're merry merry a lot of the times yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not but, but you're mainly good drunks rather than bad drunks i mean it can go either way with alcohol yeah. right yeah that's true yeah, but what do you love about Ireland season. then? What do you love about it? Because you do love um, it, don't you? I absolutely do, yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I give out about a lot of uh, stuff politically, but it, it's only political talk, really. I suppose most people most people care. I, ju I just don't like capitalism in general, you know, and that's everywhere. Mm. And uh, I, I know... Even our right-wing politicians during the pandemic did our best, you know. I mean, I, I, I'm a self-employed person, like many others who have sort of forced into self-employment um, through uh, privatisation. Right. But at least they've, they've given us a COVID payment every week of €350 Euros to do nothing, basically, you know. Who paid and you that? Government? government, yeah. It's still right. being paid yeah. to this day. Okay. So a lot of self-employed people were looked looked after in that respect, you know. Wow. And even unemployed people who are getting less than that, actually their money was up to that much, you know, so that there'd be no panic involved while this pandemic was raging through, sure. which is a very good idea. And they've done that, so you know, hats off to them. I mean, you know, I'm usually anti-establishment, but mm. I couldn't fault them in that in that respect. So it, it is generally a good place and. Even though we might give out about a lot of things, but there's an awful lot of people much worse off than we are in this country, you know? Good people so as well. Like some of the best people you'll meet. I mean, you've travelled a lot. You know what it's like around the world. And the Irish do tend to be quite friendly. Yeah. Yeah. I know a lot of assholes too, though. I probably wanted them myself. <laughs> now, it's going to be difficult for you to say because you're obviously going to be partisan. You're going to be biased a little bit. But I also think the Irish have got... Uh, amongst the best sense of humour, you know, of all nationalities. Uh, there's, they just love <laughs> telling stories and telling jokes, don't they? Most do. Yeah, yeah. A lot of bad jokes, no, I'd have to say. A lot of bad <laughs> jokes. But... Have, you ever, have you ever heard of waterfordwhisperersnews.com? Yeah, I have, yeah. I, I actually unfriended them in the end. They just got too much for me. <laughs> I, was just, I just found one the other day which is like a spoof news um, uh, outlet isn't it and the one I, I found the other day was local dickhead spends 45 minutes choosing craft beer <laughs> <sighs>
the natural high. Follow us on Twitter at Natural High Club or go straight to the website, thenaturalhighclub.com. And remember to subscribe to the Natural High podcast through whichever platform you're listening to get every new pod straight to your phone.